Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. That was fascinating. Fascinating and a little bit scary, to be honest, because I spent I spent uh, a long time reading their chats, about thousands and thousands of their messages from this closed chat room that a, a bunch of different groups, white supremacist groups, had leading up to the Charlottesville protest in 2017. It was people who really were trying to figure out how to recruit more white Americans to their point of view. And they were thinking in a granular way about things like optics. You know, what what should we be wearing? What should we be saying? What words should we not be using? Should we have tattoos? What kind of flags, what, are, what should our flags look like? You know, uh, all of that was kind of fascinating because it was really a space that they had to strategize and to figure out who they were. And I, I had very many moments where I thought I would love for progressive groups to have a similar sort of space. I mean, it's a funny thing to say, but, you know, but I, I, I really felt that it could be very useful to a different sort of group that had a more sort of pro-social uh, agenda than these guys did. That's Gaul Beckerman. His description of how the white supremacist demonstration in Charlottesville was organized is a chilling example of how a social movement can gain traction by using a period of incubation out of the public spotlight. In his new book, The Quiet Before, positive examples range from letter writers in 17th century France trying to figure out the size of the Mediterranean to women today using a closed WhatsApp group to seek a bigger role in the world of baseball. This is going to be really interesting for me because our show is about communicating and uh -huh. connecting, and your new book is about communicating and connecting in a big way. It is, yeah. How social, big social change takes place. Yeah. You found some interesting conditions under which it seems only to be able to happen, only under those conditions. Like a space, the right space. What do you mean by right, that? Right, Well, I think what I had come to observe over the last 10 or 15 years especially are were social movements that seemed to sort of flare up very quickly into the sky, grab all of our attention, and then sort of seem to fizzle. And I wondered if there was a 
kind of a step missing in, in, in the process of their development, something that wasn't allowing them to be as sustainable as they might otherwise be. And when I looked historically, it seemed that there always was this sort of period of, you know, the title of my book is The Quiet Before, this moment where people could come together, strategize, set out an agenda, figure out their differences. Sometimes you have people coming with wildly different ideas about ideology and, um, you know, how a movement should be structured, what their goals should even be, a place to sort of hash all of that out. And it occurred to me that it's just, it's a very necessary sort of uh, environment that a group of activists needs to be in and that it might be one that's being skipped entirely these days just because social media gives us this tool, this incredible tool, to mobilize very quickly with massive amounts of people. And this sort of space, we can call it, um, it's a space for, you know, for lack of a better word, I use the word incubation. I don't love the word incubation because I feel that Silicon Valley has kind of co-opted that word, hmm. incubation, <laughs> and, uh, and turned it into like meaningless mush. But, and not, but to, it, not to mention chicken farmers. Well, that too. <laughs> but incubation seems the right word because incubation to me speaks of a process that has to happen with a certain amount of heat and closeness and intimacy where you can really share ideas and dream together and argue and debate. And that has to happen in a space that's not big and public and performative and where everybody can shame everybody else. It, it demands those certain conditions. You know, so my book starts with letters before the scientific revolution. So we're talking about the 17th century and groups of people spread out across Europe who still were quite scared of doing, you know, what we today would call science openly because the church had such a, and its dogma had such a strong hold on how, how people understood the natural world or what they were allowed to say about the natural world. And so here was a group of, of people who were communicating through letters. This was a medium that sort of gave them the ability to be a little bit more under the radar. They weren't writing books, you know. They're, they're, mm. some, some of them were like a Galileo was writing a book and then he would get in trouble with the church. And, and then be, he couldn't and, leave the house after Exactly. That. He put on house arrest, his books were burned. I focused on a guy who was like his friend, who we don't remember today, but whose entire medium of communication was the letter. He was the master of the letter and he had a whole network of people throughout Europe with whom he was conducting experiments, trying to understand different aspects of the natural world, and sort of slowly accumulating knowledge, and not just knowledge, but a different way of understanding the world. A way of For example, as I remember, mm -hmm. he was able, by establishing a network through letters yes. of people helping him across the world, was able to figure out the longitudinal mm -hmm. measurement of the Mediterranean. That's right. In order to do this, to figure out longitude, you had to have, the only way to do it was to have people at different geographic locations spread out throughout the known world at the time. You know, so for them, it was as far as North Africa or Syria. And they all had to observe the same, you know, the same, some kind of celestial uh, um, event uh, on and the did same they night. Use an eclipse of the moon? Yes, exactly. So they all viewed an eclipse on the same night. And then what the difference in time that they viewed the eclipse, that equals longitude. So this was, I mean, to us, this would not be a logistical, 
you know, feet, but at, in the, you know, in the 1630s, it really was. Um, and more than just sort of coordinating all these people, there was the challenge of these were mostly missionaries or people who didn't, who had never thought in scientific terms, who never, mm. who never, who never understood that knowledge could, could accrue from what you observed with your own eyes. That was, that was the new thinking. It was a new thinking that was still quite dangerous at the time. What was the advantage of doing that by letter? Why not publish a book about it or a pamphlet or something like that? Well, letters provided this space where people could slowly go back and forth over time. They could explain themselves at length. They could answer questions to one another. There was a back and forth. You know, they would copy out parts of other people's letters and the letters they sent to one another. There was, it was a whole, it was a very rich exchange um, in, in which they were sort of building knowledge together. And when they brought in these missionaries to observe from these far-flung parts of the world, they had to basically teach them how to think like scientists. And mm. so the letters provided a medium that allowed them to sort of slowly bring them along in a way that they might have been scared to do if, if they had just read about this in a book. One of the things that really interested me was that it starts as the title of the book implies the quiet time before the thing becomes visible to the to us as a as a phenomenon. Yeah. And that quiet time you refer to as passionate whispering. Mm-hmm. Before you even have discussion and strategizing, there are there are these whispers of revelations of how we see things that we'd maybe want to change. I love the the way you quote Obama saying we can't just keep yelling. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. that's not going to really accomplish anything. This mm-hmm. awareness of the other person, awareness of listening. Mm-hmm. What were some other spaces? Are we missing any? Oh, I, I mean, I, I go through a number of them, you know, that helped incubate. There's that word. Uh, Different movements, you know, for the hundreds and hundreds of years before we had the internet. Oh, there's one, there's one chapter I really loved about West Africa, um, the, the, an English, English colony called the Gold Coast, which is now we know as Ghana, um, in the, in the 1930s. So this is before they have independence. And basically you had Africans from that part of Africa who'd gone to England and been educated and then came back and felt extremely frustrated by their inability to have any place in a society that was still run by a colonial overlord. and But they had no place to sort of put their frustration. And so they started uh, local newspapers. And these newspapers were not like newspapers that we think of them here in our, today, you know, where, where there's a, a paid staff of reporters who go out. It were mostly, almost like a message board. They were filled with what we would call op-eds today. <laughs> almost mm. entirely anonymous and pseudonymous people writing in to express their opinions about things. So you had this, suddenly this space opened up that was like a public sphere for these people who uh, hadn't really had a place where they could discuss the ways that they were unhappy being colonial subjects, what an independent African identity might look like. Uh, you know, one of the big questions was, will, will there be monogamy or polygamy in this future mm. African, <laughs> modern African state that we'll build one day when the British leave us alone? This was a big question to figure out because you had this mix of modern sensibilities and traditional uh, kind of mindsets and 
people were divided into many different tribes. They had to think through, how do we think through our allegiance to tribes so we have an allegiance to a new nation? All of this was this really important work in the quiet before, before they could have independence, um, before they could grab onto it. They needed to understand sort of what they wanted, who they were, and what that was going to look like. And so the newspapers, these newspapers were this wonderful space. I mean, it got a lot of people, the chapters about how it got a lot of people in trouble with the British authorities. But, but in the meantime, it gave them a wonderful opportunity to, to hash all of this out. Another example I looked at was in the Soviet Union and their use of uh, samizdat. People would type out five or six copies. You know, they'd have paper that was thin, it was onion skin paper, different sorts of material that was not allowed by the state. You know, so sometimes these would be, you know, translations of books that were not allowed in the Soviet Union, but very often it would be essays that people had, poetry, uh, anything that, that was just too subversive. And so you would type it out, you'd get six or seven copies after you would type it out, and then people would distribute it hand-to-hand. Now, the Samizdat that I was most interested in uh, was started in 1968. It was called the, and it was a, a journal. It was a Samizdat journal called the Chronicle of Current Events. That's what they called it. And what it, it was was a, basically a, 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 this, this, ga- this gathering of information of the sort of human rights and civil rights violations that they were seeing around them. And people began to contribute to this journal the more that it spread out. So you, you, if, if you wanted to contribute to the journal, if you, let's say somebody in your school that you were your teacher and somebody in the school you're teaching at just got fired because they were teaching a book that was not, that was outlawed. Right. So you would write that on a piece of paper with all the information, all the facts of it. And you would hand that little slip of paper to the person who you had recently gotten your latest issue of the Chronicle from. And they would hand it to that person and they would hand it to that the next person. Mm-hmm. And so it was this chain going all the way back to Moscow where the, there was one, there was a woman who I write about in the book uh, who was the first editor, there were many editors, named Natalia Gorbanevskaya. And she would take that piece of information, try to verify it as much as she could, and she would put it in the next issue of the Chronicle so that every issue was this sort of pastiche of all of these violations happening throughout the Soviet Union that the state didn't really care about, but that became sort of the way for dissidents to hold their country, their leaders to account and, and to make sure that they had a record for themselves of what they were living under. So was there an attempt to track who was passing these papers on to one another using fingerprints or anything like that? The, the KGB certainly did. And, you know, there was, in the chapter that I have on that, there was the, the Natalia Gorbanevskaya, this first editor, was arrested at some point. And the thing she was terrified of is that people would, you know, the KGB would find the slips of paper and that they would try to track them back to the individual people who had who had written them. There was a whole rigmarole with typewriters because the Soviet state had a way of, um, of tracking individual typewriters based on the type. There was, there was like signatures to the, to the type. So you'd have to change out the keys uh, on a typewriter. There was black market people who would do this so that you could use a typewriter that couldn't get tracked back to you. Um, because of little irregularities in the way the exactly, letters were shaped. Exactly, exactly. So you'd actually get your typewriter refitted Exactly. Before you'd publish a Samizdat. That's, yeah. I didn't know that. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Or people would use, you know, would try to would borrow other people's typewriters or there'd be typewriters let that were sort of... Let them get arrested. <laughs> or typewriters <laughs> that would be sort of decommissioned, you know, that were sort of floating around the dissident world. 
I mean, the, the KGB at first sort of ignored the Chronicle, and then after a certain point, it became a real problem. Most, and specifically after issues made their way out of the Soviet Union, and then the Voice of America, which was, you know, the shortwave American-run uh-huh. radio station, would start just reading from it, just uh-huh. reading from it as, as a news report, um, beaming back into the Soviet Union and hugely amplifying, you know, what the, what the Soviet dissidents were writing about. You know, they also developed relationships with journalists, you know, Western journalists who were working there uh, and would hand off copies of this. It became a real source of, of information. I mean, the other thing that was interesting about the Chronicle is they had this ethic of wanting it to be almost scientific as sort of um, without sentiment, just writing just the facts, you know? Uh-huh. And uh, and this was in huge contrast to, you know, Pravda and Izvestia or the, news, the newspapers in the Soviet Union that, I mean, everything was sort of distorted in ways that people could read right through. And and they and so the their sort of resistance was to say, we're gonna be as fact oriented, as, you know, bloodless in the way that we write this as possible. You know, they would write corrections. They would have, you know, they have in mm. each issue, they would say, in the last issue we misspelled uh, you know, such and such his name because they wanted it to build trust with their readership that they were really describing a true situation. Focus seems to be an important element, too. If the um, space and other conditions give you the chance to get focus, you seem to put a lot of emphasis on that. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, again, this is sort of looking back from the vantage point of right now and what feels like a kind of a, often feels like kind of a scatterbrained sort of mentality that we have online, you know, where we're jumping from one thing to another. You know, I can be somebody who... Uh, has a cause that I really believe in and I have my hashtag that's going viral on on Twitter with the cause that I really believe in. But then there's like, you know, 600 other things that are getting in the way and that are sort of distracting me and pulling my attention in, in so many different directions. And I think there is obviously value in saying, we're just we're just going to focus on this one thing. You know, we're going to, in the Soviet Union, for example, with that Samizdat, we're going to sort of gather all of this information and it turned them into almost like a shadow civil society because they were engaged in activities that felt they were living by different value system almost. I think that's how focus can come into play. When we come back from our break, Gaul Beckerman describes how as chilling as the Charlottesville demonstration was, the quiet plotting that led to it could be a model for the way more pro-social groups can successfully organize. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. 
Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Gold Beckerman. You make me wonder, once you've got this relatively small group, first whispering, then strategizing, focusing, mm-hmm. developing a way to cope with the, the situation they don't want and imagine the situation they can have, mm-hmm. how does it spread from there? How yeah. does it gather momentum? Yeah. Because the little group is a little group compared yeah. to the vast society. Of course. So do, do, what, what is there in, in your research that's led you to think that you have a handle on the mechanism of spread? Because that sounds yeah. to me like yeah. a really important element. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I'll have to say that, you know, so many of these situations are, are individual and, you know, in, in every different society and depending on what kind of change people are trying to make, you know, these things are particular to their moment and to the people involved. But I, I do think that there's something to be said for sort of slowly recruiting people to your, to your worldview and mm-hmm. that, you know, that can start in a small, more secluded space, but it obviously has to build. And I think there is a very important role for the loudness as well. My argument is not that, you know, people should stay in their little coffee houses and have debating <laughs> societies. I, I definitely don't think that because I, I agree with you that you undermine the spread that has to happen if you're going to bring uh, an idea, a, a radical idea for completely changing our, you know, some fundamental aspect of society or politics. If you're going to bring that to a wider public, you have to think about how you make it attractive and how you have it go viral, for lack of a better word. And I, I think that it's the balance, to me, it's the balance. It's the balance of um, the loud and the quiet, of knowing how to harness. I, I know personally, we all know personally, there's there's a, an enormous amount of power that comes from that passionate feeling that you have when you're in a crowd of people chanting and you feel mm-hmm. like you're a part of something and you feel that solidarity and you have this sort of adrenaline rush that you can actually make change, you know, that you're that you're at the final battle, right? <laughs> Good is going right. to prevail over evil. And 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 that is that is a very important energy to be able to harness, but the, my my worry is always that if that's all you have, if that's the only mode you're working in, then you're undermining yourself. There has to be some balance between that and also knowing how to retreat into a huddle as well. And you wouldn't even know where to chant, when to chant, or what to chant without the strategizing, the focus. Yeah. And then once you do make it public, then you need to figure out the next step. Well, yeah. I mean, that's that. That is the challenge. You know, I have in you know the book also has a lot of contemporaneous examples, and uh, you know, I have a chapter on Black Lives Matter, for example, where I, I talk to a lot of activists on the ground who. You know, we're so excited about the the way the country sort of turned 
in their direction, you know, in this mm-hmm. major way, uh, especially in the summer of 2020. But we're also incredibly nervous because they felt that it was almost going to, it almost felt impossible to find a way to harness this energy and actually direct it towards the real on the ground, local, in some ways, very wonky causes that would actually make a difference in people's lives, you know, changing a particular DA in one district, you know, um, getting somebody elected to a city council that they thought shared their value system. You know, how did, how do you take that huge energy and that massive desire to make change, uh, and, and and really bring it down to the elemental uh, aspects of, of of how change really works, you know, on a on a on a fundamental basic level. And opposing them were the people you write about in the chapter on yes. Charlottesville. Yeah, yeah. Who seem oddly enough to have been able to organize themselves really well using <laughs> using tools found on the web. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that was fascinating, fascinating and a little bit scary, to be honest, because I spent, I spent uh, a long time reading their chats about thousands and thousands of their messages from this closed chat room that a, a bunch of different groups, white supremacist groups had leading up to the Charlottesville protest in 2017. Some group had sort of hacked into the server that they were using to have these conversations, but it was this incredible snapshot uh, into what what a group can get from having a, a, a more closed space, from not using Twitter. And mm. first of all, there was a lot of earnestness amongst them. You know, it wasn't like the the snarky, jokey tone, you know, that we've kind of associate with their public face. It was people who really were trying to figure out how to recruit more white Americans to their point of view. And they thought a lot, they were thinking very granular in a granular way about things like optics. You know, what what should we be wearing? What should we be saying? What words should we not be using? Should we have tattoos? What kind of flags, what, are, what should our flags look like? You know, uh, you know, the thousands of messages just about Nazi symbolism and whether or not it made sense to sort of put that in the closet for now and not actually make that our front-facing thing. So uh, all of that was kind of fascinating because it was really a space that they had to strategize and to figure out who they were. And, and they were immediately focused that summer on the question of how to bring more people into the fold for Charlottesville. You know, so there was one group, uh, the Proud Boys, who we've come to know, you know, is one of these right-wing groups that was sort of trying to be a little bit more respectable and was shunning them. And, but they knew that there were enough sort of similarities and overlap in their worldviews that if they just sort of positioned themselves correctly, they could bring on this, this other group of people. And so a lot of the conversations were just about how do we do that and what's the best approach? And that to me was pretty fascinating to see. They were gathering in a, it was a platform called Discord, which was built for gamers. It was built for people playing video games so that they could chat amongst themselves while they were playing the video game. And so it was a closed room with a moderator that they had chose amongst themselves. And it was, there was no upvoting or favoriting or liking anything. It was just an ongoing conversation. And so a little bit like we were saying before, you know, the value that every person added to what they contributed was, can you keep the conversation going? It wasn't, can you be the most 
you know, bombastic in your statement. It was, mm. can you can you keep things moving along? Uh, so it was really quite helpful to them. And I, I had very many moments where I thought I would love for progressive groups to have a similar sort of space. I mean, it's a funny thing to say, but, you know, but I, I, I really felt that it could be very useful to a different sort of group that had a more sort of pro-social uh, agenda than these guys did. The things you quote them saying to one another yeah. show them to be much more polite, willing mm-hmm. to listen to the other person than you, yeah. than I would have expected. Yeah. And it was a moderated discussion. Yeah, I mean, they they chose their moderator, but that person is empowered to kick people out to say, you know, these are the rules that we have here, and you know, we we're we're gonna we're not talking about, you know, for example, there's people who wanted to start talking about bringing guns to the rally, and this moderator who happened to be a woman, which was a whole other interesting dynamic in the particular chat room I was looking at, uh, because women were not big in in this group. Uh, said, you know what, we're not talking about guns here. Like that That's the rules that we've set for ourselves. And so you can leave if you're going to keep having this conversation. So mm. it was just interesting in the ways, even that's kind of self-moderation, That's they were controlling the platform in that sense, which is something that we don't have at all when we're on uh, Twitter or Facebook. There is a, a set of rules that we're, we're not the ones setting those rules. Are they an example of how we can use the tools to bring about social change that's positive, that doesn't drive us apart, that isn't anti-Semitic, isn't... Mm -hmm. Have they been successful with it, or is there a drawback to the way they're using that space? Look, I... (laughs) It's it's such a particular you know example what who they they are and and what happened after Charlottesville is they were pushed so far further into the hole you know uh, online that I, that I feel they probably you know, they lost a lot of their spaces for even communicating. I will say this: the lesson I learned from spending some miserable weeks <laughs> listening to them talking <laughs> must, must have been a, a real ordeal yeah yeah uh for a jewish person it's not the most pleasant thing to hear uh, you know people talking like this incessantly um about who they want to you know send to the gas chamber first but as a tool it was a it was a useful tool and i i think a tool like that is neutral it could be used for terrible purposes for sure as these guys as they did but it why why couldn't it also be used by a group of um, of climate change activists who want to have a space where they can figure out, you know, some way past how stuck we are when it comes to thinking of convincing people that this is a real problem, you know? So it, it seems like it could, it could easily be used for that, you know, towards pro-social ends, let's put it that way, than anti-social ones. You tell a really interesting story about a female baseball coach uh-huh. <laughs> who did just that, just what you're describing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, I mean that was that was again one of these small. It's a it was a closed WhatsApp group that a, a woman who was um, in in sort of the world, the, the institutional world of, of baseball, um, who felt that there's not a lot of women in that world, and she wanted a space where they could talk amongst themselves and sort of encourage one another and and begin to sort of imagine opening up that world. And um, again, that's not something that she could have done on 
Twitter or on Facebook. <laughs> she needed, hmm. they needed a certain amount of privacy to, to feel like they could speak like these white supremacists with a certain amount of earnestness and, and support for one another, um, not in a performative way, but in a way that, that actually was, that felt genuine and had some intimacy to it. I mean, intimacy, I think that's a really important mm. element here too. Um, and, and I, it was, it's, I'm, I mean, there are millions of examples like that. It's not, it's not so much that people don't understand this distinction between speaking on a Twitter and speaking in a small closed WhatsApp or Signal or whatever your favorite flavor of, of small uh, <laughs> platform is. It's that, you know, I feel like movements and social movements, people who are thinking about change don't often appreciate this distinction. You know, I think we, we in our, our personal lives, we know this to be true. I think we've we've now spent a number of years understanding what it means, what it does to us when we communicate online, you know, that, that there are different modes and we need to know what it means to tweet something and what it means to, you know, to, that, that, that that's different than just having a conversation with someone. And, but I think for movements, there is still this sort of romanticism around this idea that all you need is for a hashtag to go viral, you know, for your, to change the world. You know, I, I, um, I don't think everyone is quite that naive, but but there is some there is some truth to the idea that this is still the the abiding notion, you know, that that all you need to do is sort of manipulate the virality of those um of those platforms to get your idea to spread. And I do think it's an incredible tool, but if that's the if that's if, that, if you think that that's the only thing that you need to do, you're sort of undermining the longevity and the sustainability of your cause. What are the places that people can use now? Are we so commandeered by social media that that's where we go to first? Are there other places we can think about, other platforms for this kind of quiet communication that will lead to positive change? I think there are. I mean, there's all kinds of tools. There are ways to communicate in a more sort of private, quiet way. There's all these encrypted, you know, apps like Signal and WhatsApp. There are things like Discord, which I mentioned the white supremacists use. Thankfully, after that situation, they sort of wiped the white supremacists off of there. Um, but there are there are many, even just even a... Um, you know, like a like a text chain with a with a group of people, or you know, which can actually get quite big, or a DM group on Twitter. Uh, you know, I have one chapter about epidemiologists during COVID and how they basically developed these direct message groups of you know six or seven people who could almost it gave them an opportunity to be just kind of behind the scenes, you know, because they realized that everything they were saying on Twitter was so public and mm. going to influence the way people thought. Um, at a moment where the government was sort of not filling that role. They felt like they needed to tell the public sort of what to, what to do in the early months of COVID. But they couldn't, they, they realized that, you know, Twitter would be horrible for them if it, if it was, if they didn't have some other place where they could gather amongst themselves. Yeah, you and can't so, try out ideas in public. You gotta, exactly. You got to have intimacy. Absolutely. And so, so they created that for themselves, even just on Twitter. You know, there are these sort of private, you can create a group of, you know, seven or eight people that you're direct messaging and they would literally draft tweets. They would say, what do you guys think of this? Does this sound right to you? You know, or I just saw this research, you know, there's, 
and sometimes it was, you know, very immediate. I remember one story of, you know, there was a study about how people who have COVID shouldn't take Motrin, you know, the, the, the painkiller. Mm. And then, and they had to quickly parse through the data in this study to know whether they should tweet that out and sort of magnify that, amplify that, that message, you know, but the, the point is, is that they were able to find that, the, that quiet space, you know, they were able to find what they needed, um, even on a platform like Twitter, it was just what was important. And, and, and this is the sort of bigger idea here is that understanding the, the, the distinction between the two. Yeah, it, it seems that if you can create a small space using the web, you solve one of the problems we've always had, which is to gather people who are at a long distance from one another physically, yeah. can't get together in the same yeah. room. And you solve the other tremendous problem we have now, which is that you can't gather people together from next door in the same room. Yeah. Because yeah. it's just not safe yeah. yet. The coffee shop is not an option anymore. Right, right. <laughs> Neither is Sami's dot because you have to hand you have to hand the paper to somebody. <laughs> that, that is true. That is true. <laughs> well, listen, our time is drawing to a close, but uh, we always end our show with seven quick questions that are okay. roughly associated with communication. You game? Okay, okay. First question What do you wish you really understood? God, <laughs> these are the sort of questions that you wish you had some more time to think about. Before I know that's were... <laughs> why that's why they're good as quick questions. Uh, what, what? What? I wish I understood um, the stock market. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would solve a lot of problems. <laughs> How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Mm. I think I just. I, uh, you gently uh, tell them that they have their facts wrong. <laughs> I, I'm not sure there's a there's a way around. There's any you know easy way around that one. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh my God. <laughs> um. You're such a good researcher. I think I see you looking for a way to take time out to research the answers. No, no, I'm, not, I'm thinking. <laughs> what's the strangest question anybody's ever asked me? I'm so not good on my on my feet like this. Um, oh God, I have to I have to pass on that one. Okay, and, and go to the okay. next one. Yeah. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? Uh, you uh, you you talk louder than that. <laughs> Oh, nobody's ever said that before. <laughs> Let's say you're at a dinner table and you're sitting next to someone you've never met before. How do you start up a real genuine conversation? Mm. I think asking them where their parents are from. Is oh, where really the parents are from. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. 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 What gives you confidence? <sighs> That's going to sound hokey, but my my family, just knowing that knowing that 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 when all else falls apart, uh, I have a pretty solid foundation. Great. That 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 makes me feel pretty confident. Final question. Yeah. You'll be glad to know this is the final question. Woo, I'm sweating <laughs> over here. <laughs> what book changed your life? Oh my God! I should have I should have anticipated this one coming. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't name your own book. Um, you know. 
this is going to sound very wonky, but the book that's just for some reason it's come, it's the one that's coming to mind is by a French social theorist <laughs> named, <laughs> named Bruno Latour. And, uh, and, and he had a book, uh, that explained how, um, how Louis Pasteur, uh, kind of, made pasteurization a a a, a society-wide phenomenon and how he how and, and it was in a way it's a question of like how an idea can spread this is great that's my next book that i'm going it's, to read it's it's, thank it's you. not it's not an easy read but <laughs> but it's but it's fascinating well thank you and i've enjoyed this conversation with you and i've enjoyed your book it's you've done wonderful work these these thank are fascinating you. stories that you tell Thank you, Alan. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Cole. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Cole Beckerman is the senior editor for books at The Atlantic Magazine, following six years as an editor of the New York Times Book Review. His first book, When They Come For Us, Will Be Gone, was chosen as a book of the year by both the New York Times and the Washington Post. His new book is The Quiet Before. You can keep up with Gall, spelled G-A-L, at gallbeckerman.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with playwright Sarah Rule. At a moment of both professional and personal joy, the opening of her play on Broadway and the birth of twins, she mysteriously lost her ability to smile. There was a lactation consultant in the room, and she looked at me sort of curiously while I was, while I was nursing, and she said, your eye looks a little droopy. And I thought, well, that's kind of rude. Um, and, and I think I made some joke about um, my Irish ancestry and how when we drink too much, our eyes are droopy. Um, and she said, no, it's not that. Go look in the mirror. So I looked in the mirror, and in fact, the side of the face had completely fallen down. Um, and then a neurologist was called. I called my husband, who's a doctor, and he said, have the neurologist come. The neurologist uh, was worried about a stroke. Uh and it turned out it was Bell's palsy. Sarah Rule and how she lost and found her smile, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, 
no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.